0: Amen, amen, you can go ahead and have a seat, praise God, excited to wake up tomorrow for our first Move and Miracle Monday, some of you are like, I don't know if I want to set my alarm for 7.14 a.m., that's pretty early, some of you are going to be awake for hours before that, getting a head start on contending for us and with us. Well, hey, we're in the middle of a series called Brick by Brick, and we are, uh, uh, you know, have a mission statement for this series. And that mission statement is this. We want to be a people who are focusing on the values and disciplines that we can build into our lives, brick by brick, that will build personal community and city revival. That's if, so if you have a question about where we're, well, you know, the goal, the target for tonight, that's it. What's a value or a discipline that we can take and apply to our life to see us build into our relationship with Jesus that we might have revival in our day? Hey, and uh, it is a a special night and an honor and a privilege for me to get to introduce to you a dear friend, uh, a friend of our church, a member of our board of advisors a church planner, a long time a leader of our Antioch church in San Diego, a prophetic voice to so many, and someone who loves us and has believed in us and for us. And he has a powerful word tonight. Please give a Salt Lake City welcome to Kendall Laughlin.
1: Hey, hey, good evening. So excited to get to be with my extended Salt Lake City family tonight. Thank you so much for having me. I am so privileged to get to serve uh, as just part of the board for this church and support Cody and Kate and the rest of the team in that, and I've always felt connected to what God is doing here, because before this church was planted, uh, these guys, the Gilmore's others, came and stayed actually at my house for like four or five days. Cody and Kate stayed in an RV in my driveway. It was awesome, and uh, we've, we've kept up ever since. So I've just been praying for you, and uh, good to be here and worship together. Who here has been down to San Diego to worship with us at World Mandate West sometime? Wow. Uh, it's like the front section. That's good. So uh, awesome. So thank you so much for coming. The people in the back are invited too. Don't worry. But uh, we'd really love to have you some time in San Diego. And of course, we always love being with our family up in Salt Lake City. I have a family, four kids. You have a little picture. Um, oh, it's not behind me. It's to the side of me. Got thinking about my church there. And uh, this was taken today in San Diego. So as you can see, I've got there's people with shorts on. Different climate, but same same spiritual family. So i got a one-month-old at home and all the way up to eight years old. So we are blessed and busy. Amen. Anyone with multiple children knows what I'm talking about. So, well, hey, I um, have the honor to get to talk to you tonight and get to continue to partner with you and talk about this revival series. So let me just set the stage a little bit where I'm going to talk about this evening. Uh, the year was 1948, a very significant year in world history. Israel became a nation that year. Uh, The World Health Organization, the WHO, was founded in Geneva, Switzerland in that year, in 1948. It was a big year for the United Nations. That was the year of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And um, it was also the first year of a color movie. Warner Brothers released their first color picture in 1948. But there was also something else going on in 1948, something in an unknown, an unexpected, very ordinary Place Um, On the northwest coast of Scotland, there's a group of islands called the Hebrides Islands. And in 1948, there began, began to be about a five to six year period where locals would write and describe in their history books as a period of time when God stepped down from heaven. When God stepped down from heaven, I'm speaking about the Hebrides Revival a very uh, important uh, period of revival in world history. It wasn't a very exciting place. I think I have a picture of the Hebrides for you to see. These are just little shepherd farming villages. Not a very strategic place for God to show up. Not London, not New York City, right? Not this big global environment. Not a place like Salt Lake where people are coming and going. This is a place where people never come and they never go. They just stay. (laughs) And for some reason, God chose this place amongst all the nations on the earth, amongst all the uttermost islands and place he could be as a place to step down from heaven. I'm going to read you some stories from the Hebrides revival. Uh, Three young women were praying in a barn, and suddenly there was a sound from heaven. And this is very much typical of the stories you'll read about the Hebrides revival, that people were praying or minding their own business, and God shows up suddenly. So, and suddenly a sound came from heaven, and on this barn the whole community converged and became saturated with God. People were swept into the kingdom. They had not organized. There was no publicity program, but heaven's messengers moved in the midst of the people, and in a matter of hours, the churches were filled with people being swept into the kingdom of God. This kind of sovereign move of the Holy Spirit. In another meeting on another island, a young boy got up and read a portion of Psalm 24, and he said, he read this, read this portion of Scripture, and then he prayed, Are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? And he got no further. At that moment, the presence of God so filled the place that no one could move for hours. The Hebrides revival, a time where God stepped down from heaven. And so in early 2019, I felt like God really had challenged me to study this revival in church history. So I was praying and studying, reading some different books about it, and then about September, October, I was at a, a, a gathering um, in Texas uh, with one of my leaders, Joe Ewan, who's just one of my mentors on my board, pours into me. And he said, hey, he's from Scotland where the Hebrides revival is happening. He said, hey, I felt like God wanted me to bring this book for you. And it was a book called The Price and Power of Revival, all about the Hebrides revival. You know, sometimes God gives us a burning bush. Other times he gives us a burning book. And I got on a flight, Dallas, Texas to San Diego, and I read that book three times. I was crying as God was just speaking to me about this revival in church history. The stewardess kept coming, offering me water. She did not know what to do with me. I mean, I was was a little bit of a basket case. But God was speaking and downloading something to me about this revival because he was using this book and this story of the Hebrides revival to redefine revival for me. See, I've been a church planter, I've been in ministry for some seasons now, and, you know, there's been different seasons of contending for God to do something in people's lives, and and different seasons where things kind of ebb and flow, but it's like God stepped into my world and said, hey, you need to redefine what you're looking for with revival. Revival is not better church meetings. Revival is not more evangelism. Revival is not more church engagement, more people in life groups, or more people tithing, or more people doing whatever. Revival is not more anointed worship. All those things are evidences of revival, but they are not revival. And in this book, there's a, the man who wrote it. His name was Duncan Campbell. And as the story goes, he was uh, ministering at a Christian event in Ireland, and um, he was scheduled to preach there for about 12 days. And as he got on the stage for his first message, God spoke to him and said, you must leave Ireland immediately and get on a boat to the Hebrides revival because I'm about to pour out my spirit there in a way that will touch the world. He got on a boat, went to the Hebrides islands, got off on the Isles of Lewis, and God stepped down from heaven. And as Duncan Campbell writes about this great move of the Holy Spirit, where people's lives were touched, people met Jesus for the first time, people were set free and transformed, this is how he defines revival. Revival is a community saturated with God. Revival is a community saturated with the awareness of God. Revival is not just better church meetings. Revival is something more. It's an intangible thing where God steps down from heaven. One of the oldest people still living that was impacted by this revival. He's still interviewed today. He's 92 years old. He's a retired minister of the Church of Scotland. And he remembers walking at about 14 years old with his mother on a little trail next to a cornfield and the presence of God just touching them powerfully and getting on his knees and giving his life to Jesus in the middle of a field. There's another story about a Christian jailer. He was the only Christian in his community. There was no church. And um, as he got down on his knees one night just to pray his prayers, you know, before bed, I think he slept in the jail to make sure, you know, the bad guys didn't get out right. So he gets down on his knees to say his prayers, and God steps into the jailhouse. Not only do all of the prisoners come to Christ, but people throughout the community just start showing up at the jail. Verse 5, verse 10, verse 20. It's about a two to 300-person village. At the end of the night, about 80% of the village is at this jail, just crying out for God spontaneously. They don't know why they're there. It was a move of the Holy Spirit. Children who, who are now, you know, very aged or interviewed, what was it like to be there in the Hebrides revival? And this is a very common story. What they'll say is, well, have you ever had one of those times, I have, this happens to me all the time because I have young children, okay? Have you ever had one of those times where you're asleep in your room in the middle of the night and you get woken up and you realize someone's staring at you? Any parents know what I'm talking about? Your kids, you're like, whoa, there's a child in here, you know? Okay. That would happen to us all the time as children, but it would be the Lord. Their words, not mine. Revival is a community saturated with an awareness of God. So as we talk about revival, you know, this little revival started on this little island. I we talk about an obscure place, an even more obscure island of 400 people, the Isle of Lewis. And I looked up just that name, Lewis, and it's from a Nordic word that means song house. So tonight, I want to talk to you on the subject, building the house of revival, building the house of revival. I know you've been in a series at this church called Brick by Brick. And um, my kids were so excited that this series was called Brick by Brick, by the way, when I told them where I was going. They said, are you going to talk on Legos because we're brick masters? I'm like, no, we're not going to talk on Legos. But that would be exciting. Um, we are going to talk tonight about building the House of Revival. So let's pray. Um, I know we've prayed a lot in this service, but I just want to give God a moment to translate this message for all of us. Because I believe that you're going to walk away with something personal about your role And building the house of God as a place for revival. Just open your hands with me. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this place to teach us and train us. And I do pray that every single person would walk away with a personal word from you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight we're going to look at three different things. First of all, why. Say why. We're going to look at why we need revival. I was raised in a church where every couple years there would be an itinerant minister would come in and say, this is a revival week. Well, I didn't know why we needed a revival Why we need revival. Number two, how God brings revival into the life of his people in a fresh way. And number three, what is a biblical revival? What are we asking for when we ask God to saturate our community with an awareness of him, when we ask God to bring revival? Okay, so first of all, why? Why do we find ourselves in need of revival? We find ourselves in need of revival because we get stuck. We get stuck. Has anyone here ever felt stuck in life? Just give me a little wave all over the room. We've all felt it, right? Maybe you've been stuck financially. You have a goal, you can't get there. Maybe you have a savings goal or you're paying off some debt. You get stuck. Maybe you have a career goal. You feel stuck in your career. You're trying to move it forward and it's not quite happening for you. Maybe there's a relationship. You're not quite sure. Is this gonna pay off? Do I walk away? I feel stuck in this relationship. Maybe it's a project, right, that you take on. You don't know how it's gonna turn out. We can feel stuck. Well, my family, we live in a house that we bought about 8 years ago in San Diego and it was a, a fixer-upper house. Now, real estate in Southern California is really expensive. I don't know if you know that. So, um, we had a certain amount of money that we were able to believe for and God provided miraculously and when you buy a fixer-upper house, there's a few different options. There is the cosmetic fixer-upper, right? There's like put on a little paint, you know, maybe trade out some fixtures or some cabinetry knobs and you're good to go there is the flip right which it you know in pretty good shape maybe trade out some appliances switch out the kitchen cabinets it's going to look like a new house and then there is the total and complete gut job well we could afford the total and complete gut job so that's what we got and so we moved into this house that we got to fix up. Now, the, uh, the surprise is God has taught me a lot about building and rebuilding houses in this journey because I thought it was going to be about a two-and-a-half to three-year process. It's been an eight-year process. Praise God, I've learned so much. Thank you, God, for teaching me this lesson. But we've been stuck numerous times. So we've been stuck financially, right? Okay, we need a little more to complete this part of the house. We've been stuck because we didn't have the right contractor, but probably the most frustrating instances of when we've gotten stuck is when my cat has forced us to get stuck. My cat has trapped herself in the wall in the middle of a drywall project. My cat has crawled up into the attic in the middle of a roofing project. That's a whole nother sermon, but it's been really frustrating. And I think I'm just wanting to acknowledge, and hopefully you're hearing me, it's really frustrating to be stuck. And being stuck is the reason we need revival, because sometimes the work of God gets stuck in our life. I know it's hard to admit, God is always doing something, but, but sometimes things get stuck. This happened to the people of Israel. Ezra chapter 4, this is the context of the second rebuilding of the temple. And so the people of Israel have been in exile. They've been in Babylon, because, and because of their disobedience, God in his mercy has brought them back to Jerusalem. They're going to rebuild this place of worship in the Old Testament where the Hebrew Jewish people used to worship. But the work of God gets stuck, Ezra 4.24. Thus, the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Even God's people can get stuck. Somebody get an amen. I know what I'm talking about. Goals, promises, they can get stuck. But what's interesting to me about this moment in the life of Israel is there really wasn't a practical reason them to be stuck. They had already taken up an offering. They already had the temple paid for. They already had the right leaders in place. They had permission from the government. They had the location on which they were going to build, but they were still stuck. And you know what? This speaks to me a lot about the church in America today. I'm so thankful for the work of the Holy Spirit in this church. This church is not stuck. That's why I'm not preaching this message that way, okay? This is a great church that God is moving in and powerfully But I just have to let you know, as as a Christian in our society, you need to know that the church in America is stuck. We aren't moving forward with God's best in the way that God wants us to transform society. This will be the first generation, a little bit younger than me, kind of 30 and under, uh, the first generation of people where there is more non-Christians than Christians in society. So, in the United States today, we're having to really understand what it looks like for us to live in exile. We are not the predominant group in our country. Evangelical Christians are not the predominant group in this city. And so, at times, that can cause the work of God to get stuck. There's this great organization called the Barna Group. They do studies on Christianity, sociological studies. They interviewed thousands of people, and they just did a study on kind of the up-and-coming generation, young adults in our society. And this is what they did. They classified young adults into four different categories. And the reason I want to bring this up to you is not because I'm blaming the government. I'm not blaming our culture. I'm not blaming Instagram. I'm not blaming the media, the liberal media, the conservative media, whatever media. This is our problem. As Christians, because the survey you're about to see surveys young adults that were raised in church and whether or not they are spiritually stuck today. The surveyors categorize them into the four categories: prodigals, these people are ex-Christians, they don't identify themselves as Christians any longer. You can see the percentage on the screen, not good. Nomads, this is what you might call a lapsed Christian, this is a person that has not had any Christian experience in their life in the last six months. So they might be Christians, but they're kind of Christians in name only. They're not practicing Christians. Big population of people who are raised in evangelical churches. Habitual churchgoers. These are people who have been to church maybe once in the last month, but they don't have any foundational core beliefs or behaviors of discipleship. And then finally, 10% of those raised in church today would qualify as resilient disciples, people whose faith is strong enough to build them in exile. And what's a resilient disciple? Somebody that attends church monthly, trusts in the Bible, committed to Jesus personally, believes in the cross and the resurrection, has a desire to transform broader society. That's what we all want to be, right? Amen? Resilient disciples. And so, wow, So you're starting to see, this is not good. The church in America is stuck. We're not even increasing the discipleship of our own children. What's interesting, though, is if you look at the next slide, and I'm not going to go through the whole study, but children that have an experience with Jesus early in their life almost always become resilient disciples. So this is what we see. Meeting with Jesus begets a lifestyle of living for Jesus. Revival begets revival. God has an answer for the stuck church in America. And it's not social media marketing campaigns, although my church does those. It's not big events. All those those are great for rallying people and showing them the gospel. It's revival. We need a community that is saturated with the awareness of God. Amen? Amen. So, Let's look at our next question today. How? How does God bring revival into the hearts of people? What happens here in Israel? How does God bring revival in this season? Okay, so let's move forward in the story a little bit. So the work of God is stuck, Ezra chapter 4. Let's move to Ezra chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And as we read this, here's the context. This is 15 years later. So Ezra 4:24, Ezra 5, 15-year gap. So just think about your life 15 years ago. Okay, some of you were three 15 years ago, okay? Little Johnny, who was a toddler, he's in his first year at Yeshiva University, right, in Jerusalem, okay? Some of the original workers, some of the original people who are working on the building, the temple, they've probably died. Maybe they even lost the building plans, right? They didn't have Evernote like us to save all of our stuff, okay? Finally, 15 years later, God revives the work, okay? Ezra 5, verses 1 and 2. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Edo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel who is over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Sheotel, all these Hebrew names, man. And Joshua, son of Jozadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. Here's the key verse. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. How does God bring fresh revival into our life? He does it by reigniting prophetic promises. God brings revival into our life by bringing to mind His promises, personal promises and the promises of His Word. This is the key. When we are stuck, we have to reach out for the promises of God. When we are stuck, we have to reach out for the promises of God. The prophets of God were with them supporting them. I looked up that word, support. It's an Aramaic word, and it means to comfort and to strengthen. Kind of reminds me of this verse about prophecy in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 14.3. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. The Hebrew words for support, comfort, and strengthen, 1 Corinthians 14.3, one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Are you following me? Okay, so you might be new to this conversation. So a little backstory: Our church, All People's Church in San Diego, we always have people every week where it's their first time at a church. So if this is your first time at a church, I know we're talking about revival, but I want to give you a little context for the meeting you just walked into, okay? So this church is all about Jesus. Amen? Okay, so Jesus died on a cross as a sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. He didn't have to. He chose to, he lived a perfect life, and so his death on that cross was a perfect sacrifice for your sin and for mine. After he died on the cross, he rose from the dead. He did that to show that he is the way to eternal life. He's the way to heaven, okay? And then he ascended into heaven a number of days later, where now he reigns in heaven. But he didn't leave us alone. He didn't just say, hey, I'm going to go up to heaven, and you guys... You know, just read the Bible and you'll be okay. Instead, he sent his Holy Spirit. He actually told his disciples, it's going to be better if I go. Another one's going to come and teach you. Why would it be better? Because Jesus was bound to time and space. But with the Holy Spirit, we all have the same access to our Heavenly Father. God has no grandchildren. And so he sent his Holy Spirit. And when that Holy Spirit speaks to us today, we call that prophecy. So when I use the word prophecy, I'm not speaking about Nostradamus or end times prophecy. I'm not speaking about like a book that tells you, you know, how everything's going to unfold at the end. When I use the word prophecy, I'm using it in the New Testament Bible way, which means encouragement from God for your journey. Amen? Okay. Look at your neighbor and say, I need some encouragement. We all need prophetic encouragement from God. how God brings revival. He brings it to us by giving us prophetic encouragement, by giving us prophetic promises. So what's really cool about the book of Ezra is it says the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. One of them was named Haggai. We actually know exactly what Haggai said because we have it in the book of Haggai. So if you have a Bible, turn with me real quick. Haggai chapter 1. This is what Haggai told these believers, these followers of God. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. And it talks about some of the different people are involved and how they began the work on the house of the Lord. But the message was very clear, I am with you. That's a good encouragement from God. Amen? I am with you. God is with us. That's what a promise from God is like. God confirms his promises in our life and invites us into a season of contending for revival. So this is a church that's contending for revival, that's believing for revival. So let me just speak for a minute about the role of prayer and revival. You ever wondered that? Like how do prayer and revival interact? How does that work? Well, it's really important to understand how God's government works. So how did Jesus teach us to pray? Your democracy come. No. Right? Okay, Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You tracking with me? Matthew chapter 6. So when we look at how God works in our world, he works in the context of a kingdom. So what does that teach us? Well, first of all, heaven is not a democracy. So in California, we have a democracy. So what that means is if 51% of the people pass any kind of thing, it can become a prop and become a law in our state. And so sometimes when we think about prayer, we can think about it like we're in a democracy. If we could just get 51% of the people praying, maybe revival would come. If we could just get enough people. Heaven's not a democracy. You guys like snow? There was a guy named David Brainerd, okay, in church history who really liked snow. He liked so much snow that he would go into the snow every morning at 4 a.m. and pray for the Native Americans. And what they described after his death, they wrote a story about his life and they said there would be a radius of melted snow around him as he was praying for revival. Revival doesn't require a democracy. Okay, so in the United States, we have a republic. And so the way a republic works is we appoint special people to go to the government and represent us. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Okay, so sometimes we can get this idea in the church. Revival will come when we have the special appointed person pray on our behalf. Sometimes when I'm praying for someone that's sick, you know, we're believing for healing, but what can, what can be hard is I can hear them say, "Well, this person pray for me, and this person pray for me, and this person pray for me, and this. And I'm, what I hear, when I hear that is, wait a minute, it's, it's actually, yes, God uses people, but God will use anybody. That's the whole point of Acts chapter 2, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. So it's not your gender, right? On the, your old men are going to dream dreams. The young men are going to see visions. It's not your age, even on my servants. It's not your education or your class or your background. God wants to pour out his spirit on all people. So heaven's not a republic. You don't need a special apostle, a special prophet to pray for you. You have direct access to your heavenly father. Some people describe heaven as a benevolent dictatorship. It's a little closer. But a dictator can't be influenced. Heaven is a kingdom. Two things about a kingdom. Number one, when a king decrees a thing, so it is. There's no conversation. And it only takes one person to influence a king. That's what we learned from the life of Esther. So, We don't pray for revival like this. God, if we could just get all these people together and pray for revival. Or God, will you send a special person to bring a special anointing or special impartation into our city to bring revival. This is how we pray for revival. We come to the king and we remind him of his decrees. And so we say, King Jesus, you decreed you would pour water on the thirsty ground. Lord, we're thirsty. Send revival. King Jesus, you said the Spirit of the Lord was upon you and anointed you to preach good news to the poor. We ask for the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Send revival. Jesus, you said in James chapter 5 that Elijah was a man just like us. And when he prayed, that didn't rain for three years. And then when he prayed, it did rain for three years. God, we're not perfect. We're not even as good as Elijah. But you said he was a man just like me. So I'm praying, Lord, let the prayer of a righteous man, because I'm made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ, come before you and remind you of this promise, send revival. Pray God's word as a covenant promise. And because our king is a covenant keeper, He will keep his word and send revival. To build a house, you have to have a plan. And God has a plan for his house of revival. It's all over the book of Acts. You can read it. What is a revival? What are we contending for? We've talked about why. We've talked about how. Let's just try to define revival a little bit together. Ezra 6, 1 and 3. This is what happens. They have to search the library and find the original building plans for the temple. Now, our church is in the middle of a building project. I know all about building plans, okay? So, King Darius issues an order and they search the archives in the treasury of Babylon. You know what gets them unstuck is when they, they find that original plan. God has given us an original plan for revival in the book of Acts. Why do we always go back to the book of Acts? It's like that original seed, it's the church in its purest form. It's God's heart for us to see revival. This is how we recover the biblical plan for revival. But sometimes when we look at the book of Acts, I have about five more minutes. Keep going. I got the pastor wave. See you tomorrow. All right. So um, sometimes when we read the book of Acts, we can see like, wow, you know, look at all these big events. But one thing we need to remember The book of Acts was written over a period of 30 years. And so there's the ascension of Jesus in 30 A.D., Solomon's porch in Acts chapter 5, 32 A.D., the appoint deacons in 33 A.D., conversion of Paul in 35 A.D., Paul's first missionary journey in 46 A.D., Paul in Rome in 65 A.D., John writes Revelation even 30 years after that in 92 A.D. So really what we're reading is the greatest hits. And the reason I bring that up is because Sometimes when we see these stories, we think every day is supposed to be like that. And revival is actually a slow rain. It's just a community that is saturated in the awareness of God. Sometimes you're saturated in the awareness of God while you're changing a child's diaper. Other times you're doing your taxes. Hey, Jesus did his taxes. Did he not? Okay. Other times God's healing the sick. Other times, it's all on the same day. Revival is a community saturated in the awareness of God. So my heart for you, as you're a church that's contending for revival, is to now make a delineation between two things, revivalism and biblical revival. Okay, I'm going to end with this. What's revivalism? Revivalism is man's attempt to bring revival. You might remember a story from the Old Testament where some people touched God's ark and they died. God doesn't like it when we try to do things our way. But we get so excited about revival, we get so excited about God showing up, that sometimes we think, hey, if if we just kind of do it our way, maybe God will bless our works. And then there's true biblical revival. So I just want to make some paradigm shifts for us this evening as we move into a time of contending for revival. Revivalism, man's attempt for revival, it views personal transformation as an event. And so what I mean by that is, is, is when you have an experience with God, everything changes at once. Revival is actually not like that. I've, I've been in some revivals. Revival is very messy. So people are changed over time. So Antioch, Salt Lake, if you're contending for revival, you can expect to have a messy church for the next couple years. Because God is going to bring in people who are dead and need reviving. Okay? So, their transformation is going to be a process. In revivalism, what can happen is everything can be about the church service and the altar call. Right? It's got to make you got to get more people to the front. You know, got to and an encounter with God becomes the end goal. Listen, I love encountering God. Like, I'm the biggest encountering God guy out there. Okay? Trust me. But truly, an encounter with God is an invitation to a journey with God. And When someone is touched by the Holy Spirit, that's the time they need prayer more than any other time, because it's now their time to walk out what God has put in their heart. In revivalism, everything comes about church services, so family becomes a distraction. I don't see that as biblical Christianity, do you? No. In true biblical revival, family is the foundation for everything that God does. Our first ministry is to our homes, amen? Yeah. And the spiritual disciplines, when we get into revivalism, we're always looking for the next new thing, the next new song, the next new conference, the next new sermon. And so just sitting down and reading your Bible in the morning can feel very dull. But in true biblical revival, actually every person is meeting with God in a powerful way. The spiritual disciplines are a delight. So when we come together, it's the overflow of that. That's biblical revival. Okay, a few more. In revivalism, finances can become very moralized. So it's, good, it's a good thing, you know. It's, it's um, like the prosperity gospel, you know. Like, if you're godly, you're going you're gonna to have this much money. You're going to have these possessions. So people can get into that. That's been an excess of revival. you probably heard of that, right? Another excess of revival has been the poverty gospel, right? Kind of like, who can live on the least? Well, I don't think that's what God wants either. In biblical revival... Finances just get utilized for the glory of God. Amen? Right? So, okay. So, just a few more things. Our unwanted emotions. Anyone out there ever had an unwanted emotion? Right? Anger, whatever. Christians call it frustration. In revivalism, we view unwanted emotions as sinful. So, we don't know what to do with them. In true biblical revival, God gives us the grace to process those things. They aren't sinful. They're soulful and maybe just to end this, what is the work of the local church? What's the work of a ministry? What are we doing when we're saying we're building the house of revival? And the band can come on up. The work of the ministry, when you get into revivalism, about working in your own strength to make God do something, you're thinking I'm beginning a revival. Well, in what we've seen, Duncan Campbell didn't do anything to begin a revival in the Hebrides Islands of Scotland. He just got off a boat in true biblical revival, the local church is just the container for the presence of God. A community is saturated with the awareness of God. And we're coming together to say, God, will you fill this little cup? Will you fill this little jar of clay that we're coming together together? I want to end with a story. When I was a freshman in college, God really got a hold of my life. And I hadn't been discipled. I didn't know how to pray. I didn't know how to fast. I didn't know about revival. I didn't know about the Holy Spirit. But I did know that God had something more for me. So I started going to a church a lot like this one. And at this church, one particular night, a gentleman came and he spoke on fasting. And I thought, well, I'll try anything once. So I thought I'd try fasting. I'd never missed a meal before, but it didn't stop me. So I said, I'm going to go on a three-day fast with only water. Okay, a day and a half into my three-day fast, I was ready to eat. And so um, I, I got down on the floor of my dorm room. And no one had ever taught me to pray before, but I had one Christian song I had illegally downloaded on my computer from Napster. (laughs) And it was, I'm desperate for you. I was pretty desperate, to be honest with you. Had a headache, didn't feel very good from the fasting. I got down on my knees, and I said, God, would you speak anything to me before I break this fast early? I'm giving you this one moment. Hey, I just want to say something. It's by his grace. There's never enough fasting. There's, we, our spiritual, religious attempts to get God to do something are nothing compared to the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so, as I sat in my dorm room, I'd never heard of this before, I didn't know what it was, but just right before me, about the size of an iPad Pro, a light filled the room. I realized I was having a vision and on this vision I saw my life and a house came up on the vision like on the screen and the Lord spoke to me and said your life is like this house and I watched and I became very concerned because that house caught on fire. It went on a long time, I watched the whole thing burn to the ground, I was freaked out what remained was a, a concrete foundation and a pile of rubble. And then a wind came, took up that rubble, and started to build something new. Didn't deserve that. It's been a lot better, faster than me. But something happened where my, my life became saturated with an awareness of God. And God's fire came on my life to cause me to be a person that contends for revival. You know, as I was praying for your church today, I was reminded of a story from the Old Testament. It's a weird story. It's a story about a guy's bones. He's in a grave. A guy falls in, touches the bones, and he dies, and he hops out of life. And I thought, what if this was a church that contended for the presence of God to the point that they had revival in their bones? The fire of God came on their life in such a way that people who accidentally touch them experience transformation. People that didn't even see it coming. That's a community that's saturated in the awareness of God. That is true biblical revival.